You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to everyone. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor here at Washington Post Live, also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. I am thrilled to have today Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, independent. Obviously, everyone has heard of Senator Cinema. You've been instrumental in so many discussions and negotiations in Congress over the past two years. So thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to ask you about recent events first, the State of the Union. What was your response first to the president's tone, the president's speech? Well, I was really pleased to see that the president spent a lot of time during the State of the Union speech talking about the pretty incredible achievements that we were able to do the last two years. As you mentioned, I've been instrumental in authoring and shepherding through bipartisan legislation over the last two years. So when the president was talking about the bipartisan infrastructure law, which I wrote and authored with Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, um, and eventually uh, you know, bringing in a larger group of senators, I was really excited to hear about those investments in our country. And I appreciated when the president talked about the importance of our Chips and Science Bill, which Senator Todd Young and I really resuscitated and got across the finish line last summer. Um, I was happy to hear the president talk about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is the historic gun violence prevention and mental health bill that I authored last year with um, Senators Murphy, Tillis, and Cornyn. I do wish that the president had talked a little bit more about the mental health parts of that law, though, hmm. because later in his speech, he talked about the need to invest in mental health and $14.5 billion of uh, funding for mental health is what we included in the legislation last year. And as many folks know, my first profession, I was a social worker. And so for me, that part of the law was incredibly important. And so. Uh, one takeaway I had from the State of the Union is I thought maybe the president doesn't realize how much investment we have made in mental health. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't, then maybe America doesn't. So something I'm going to double down on this year is to make sure that Arizonans and Americans understand that we have these new, uh, really strong supports for mental health across the country and to make sure they're getting pushed out all across the country. And then finally, yeah. um, I, was, uh, I was hoping the president would spend perhaps a little more time on um, one of the latest and last achievements we had in the Senate last year, which was to pass the Respect for Marriage Act, yeah. which settles the status of marriage equality for Americans all across the country. But just as importantly to my constituents in Arizona, enshrine some of the strongest religious freedom protections in our country's history. And I'm incredibly proud of that. And I think that that law in addition to the others that we accomplished over the last two years. But that one in particular demonstrates what I've been trying to share with folks across the country the last few years, which is you can have really strong opinions mm -hmm. about something you care very deeply about, and you can also find ways to accommodate and meet other people's very strong opinions. And the Respect for Marriage Act did that so perfectly well, right? Mm -hmm. Addressing the issue of same-sex marriage and also addressing the importance of religious liberties. Um, so that's a quite a list of accomplishments. Mm, I skipped a few. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but I want to talk a little bit about the status of the political ecosystem in this country. During that State of the Union address, you heard members of the Republican Party shout at the president. What was your reaction to that? Is that yeah. the way to get the president's attention? 
So I, I find it disturbing and, and sad that the State of the Union has devolved into a junior high softball game. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to be clear, there were members of the Republican Party who engaged in behavior that I thought was not becoming of elected officials in our country. There were also members of the Democratic Party who would hiss or chant as well. And so um, we've seen this not just in this year's State of the Union, but but going back for a number of years. I actually was sitting next to Todd Young. We served together in the House um, before serving in the Senate. And I said, do you remember when the Joe Wilson you lie was horrifying? Horrifying. Horrifying. Yeah. And I do remember that. And now- And the um, reaction is different this time, it seems. It everyone seems... is raucous. And like, I was worried people were gonna start throwing hot dogs and popcorn at each <laughs> other. and. Um, I find that disappointing. Um, I find it, to be honest, I find it beneath the dignity of the United States Congress. And what, what I find most disturbing about it is the fact that it's normalized, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of people talk about how I'm different. Um, and one of the ways that I am really proud to be different is that I believe that that type of behavior is beneath us. Mm -hmm as elected officials, as Americans, as representatives of our government. And I don't think that anyone, anyone who's elected to office should engage in that behavior. So what would you change and how would you change about politics today? Well, I think I've been setting an example of that kind of on the course all by myself for a few years now. Mm -hmm. um, you can disagree with someone without being disagreeable, right? So I can say to someone, I, I don't agree with your opinion. I'm going to try to defeat you on this piece of legislation, but I believe that you can do so in a way that is respectful, that is dignified, and that understands that someone's point of view, even if it's different than your own, comes from their own understanding and their own experience. One of the challenges I find in politics today is this idea of my way or the highway. Like, I'm right, you're wrong, therefore I'm good, you're evil. That's really dangerous. It's very, very dangerous for our democracy. And the reality is, is that I have my own opinion that I've come to honestly through my own experiences and education and exposure. And you have come to your opinion through that same honest exposure, experience, and practice. And so recognizing that your idea is different than mine doesn't mean one is right or one is wrong or one is better or one is worse. It's just that they're different. Mm -hmm. We could do that again. We could have that again. How? Well, people. Is it just how people act? Is it the it personal is. choices? Is it behavior? It is about personal behavior choices. We are adults, so we all get to make our own choices about our behavior. So years ago, when I was a social worker, I worked in an elementary school, and sometimes teachers would ask me to talk to their kids when there were problems, and they would say, well, she made me do it, or I couldn't help it, or this person forced me to. And one of the things that I would tell kids early, early on was actually, you get to make your own choices. You have agency. Mm -hmm. And so someone else might do something that's really upsetting or hurtful, but that's about them. You get to make your decision about how you behave. So you'll notice that I don't engage in the tit for tat that folks in Washington engage in. I don't respond to the petty pokes. I don't engage in the hallway nastiness with you know, talking about other people. I don't do any of that. And one, I think it's because I 
I'm better than that, and I think we all are better than that. But two, I'm demonstrating that you can engage in political action at a level of dignity and integrity and be very successful. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that Republicans shouted at the president of the State of the Union was over this issue of Social Security and Medicare cuts. Where do you stand? Do you think that those entitlement programs need to be changed, altered, cut, reformed, anything, or are they good as they are? Well, I'm really glad that you've mentioned it the way you did, because I, I actually think the term entitlement is a is a mistake, mm -hmm. right? So uh, Social Security and Medicare are programs that Americans pay into. You and I are paying into it all the time, as are, I think, everyone in the audience. This is what we do as productive members who are working in American society. So it's not an entitlement, it's an earned benefit. Mm -hmm. And that benefit should be there when it's time for retirement. But Leanne, look, by the time you and I retire, there'll be nothing left, right? We have to do something about this. Um, we have to think about how do we ensure the longevity of the system and the health of the system. And right now, the two programs are not healthy. There's not enough money, nor is there enough in the system, in the structure, the way it's set up right now, to ensure that there will be a retirement for when you and I get to that age. Of course, no, no time soon. We're both very young. <laughs> but uh, look, anyone who's a Gen Xer or younger um, like us, doesn't realistically expect there will be anything there when we retire. So we've got to do something um, to engage in that like fix, to make it a system that honors the promise that we've made to Americans, that if you work hard your whole life, this will be there when you retire. And that's why I'm part of the working group. I was that, just going to ask, that's right. is, there, is there a working group talking about Of course there is. <laughs> so I'm part of a working group um, with Senator Cassidy, Senator King, and others. Um, where we're actually looking at how can we shore up and protect the system so that there is that dependable, reliant system in place for when people of our age and younger retire. Mm -hmm. On the debt limit, should it be part of those discuss uh, discussions and negotiations with the debt limit or generally any sort of spending cuts should be involved in that or should as President Biden and Senator Schumer are saying, is a clean debt limit alone, talk about these other issues separately. Well, as you know, I've been in DC now for about 10 years, and we've been dealing with the debt limit during all of those 10 years. And sometimes we do it in a reasonable way, and sometimes there's some clowning around. Um, it's my personal opinion that it is your duty as a member of Congress to pay the bills you've already incurred, right? That is our job. So do I believe that we should address the debt limit? Yes. Should we do so without causing panic in the markets or downgrading our rating as has happened in the past back in 2011? Absolutely. We owe it not just to our own domestic responsibility, but we owe it to our partners around the world to keep a stable global economic climate. Do we need to have discussions about inappropriate and runaway spending in Washington, D.C.? Absolutely. Should one be held hostage to the other? No. Now, folks will know that I'm a big fan of saying no on the quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. um, this was an issue that happened over and over in 2021. Uh, I negotiated the bipartisan infrastructure law. There were some in DC who felt like they could convince me to vote yes on a different piece of legislation by holding one bill hostage. And what I said over and over during that time is no. Each matter should be decided 
on its own merits. And so I believe the debt limit should be decided on its own merits. And addressing runaway spending that's not sustainable in our country should also be addressed on its own merits. Well, we have many more months to talk about this, hopefully. Actually, only a few. A few, but. Yeah, no pressure. In, <laughs> in Washington speak and in journalism speak, it's a long time. That's true. And, and it's clear that there's not any kind of consensus right now, even within parties, yeah. about where they want to go or how they want to resolve this. So what I see as my role um, in this effort is, is what I try to have my role be in all efforts, which is to listen to the needs and concerns of people in both political parties and try to help figure out how to identify and reasonably address their needs in a way that gets us to a solution where everybody benefits. And in this instance, where we retain our global economic standing. You recently had dinner with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week. Did you talk about the debt limit? What did you guys discuss there? Well, it's not going to surprise you that I'm not going to tell you anything that we talked <laughs> did about. Did you give him any advice? You know, Kevin and I have been friends for a long time. We served together in the House used for to six work out years. Together, right? We used to work out together, although I'm not sure he works out as much as I do. But no, I'm just kidding. No, he's great. Um, we've been friends for a long time, and we, we worked out in the gym together. We've worked together on legislation. Um, we are friends, personal friends. So I will say I was... I, I wasn't surprised, but again, disappointed when people freaked out. Oh, cinemas having dinner with Kevin. Yeah, because we work together. That's normal. Um, but did you give him any advice? Oh, I'm not going to tell you anything about the conversation. Nothing. No, he had the chicken. I'll tell you that. <laughs> now, this isn't a surprise, Leanne. Um, I am known in the halls of DC, much to the chagrin of, of uh, journalists, that I don't talk at all about my private conversations true. with others. It's true. And the reason I don't is because those relationships are based on trust. Mm -hmm. And the best way to be successful is for others to trust you implicitly, to know that everything you say, they can take it to the bank, that you're always being direct, you're always being honest, and that you will always protect your conversations with them as confidential. So I never talk about my conversations with colleagues. And I believe that is key to my recipe of finding great success, which I've demonstrated. I'm able to do over and over again. And it's because I'm not unwilling to share those private conversations with anyone. You recently led a CODEL to the border with a bipartisan group of senators um, and to show and to see what was happening there. You have taken up this issue of immigration with North Carolina Republican Senator Tom Tillis. So first I wanna ask you, where has the administration fallen short when it comes to immigration slash border security? Mm, that's a good question. Um, so in addition to working on this issue with Senator Tillis, as folks know, I work very closely with Senator Cornyn, also a border senator. Um, and I chair the border subcommittee in the Senate and have for a couple years now. And so um, the work I've been doing on this is both exciting because there's an opportunity for us to get something done, but frustrating because this administration, just like the administrations before this one, so this was true under Biden, it was true under Trump, and it was certainly true under Obama. All of those administrations have failed to adequately secure our border. So I don't consider this to be partisan. I consider it to be the failure of administrations going back decades um, for not having the political will or frankly even the knowledge or interest in understanding border communities. Um, so the Biden administration continues to say that the border is secure, 
that's factually inaccurate. Mm -hmm. It just is factually inaccurate. There is objective truth, and the objective truth is that the border is not secure. And in fact, right now, we're in this really terrible situation where the cartels are choosing who gets to come into this country, not us as a government. And that gives a lot of power to the cartels. They raked in over $5 billion by charging migrants insane amounts of money to come into this country with no promise of a long-term path to regularization or citizenship. And that's unfair to those individuals. So the Biden administration has failed in securing the border, not just for those migrants, but also for the border communities that are suffering because of the really the huge rush of migrants who are coming in without the ability to adequately care for those individuals. So I have been calling on the administration to do their job and actually provide border security with the tools that we have given them year in and year out. But I do believe that they can't do it alone. We actually have to make some legal changes to the asylum system. The cartels are exploiting it because there are loopholes within the language. We at Congress have to fix that. So rather than spending a lot of time blaming one administration versus the other, because there's plenty of blame to go around, I would suggest that we focus on problem solving and say, look, the administration does need to do its job in using the tools that we've given them, the dollars we've appropriated, which we did again in December, to make sure they have the funds they need to do this security work and the humanitarian work and then Congress has to step up to the plate and actually provide the legal changes to fix the system and create a path for those who deserve a right to be Americans in our country, those who meet the qualifications, and to settle the status of the millions who are already here, like the dreamers mm -hmm. who are living in legal limbo. So what are the chances of finding Republicans and Democrats, 60 in the Senate, to pass something like this? Is, is, are Democrats willing to do what needs to be done on border security, and are Republicans who have now adopted the position, for the most part, that they will not address dreamers or immigration until the border is secure? Well, both parties are engaging in kind of this talking point um, scenario that I think is not very helpful. I, that doesn't surprise mm -hmm. you that I'm saying that, right? But there are some who think that there needs to be no changes made to border security or even to be more generous in opening the border. And I would argue that those are folks who don't really understand what's happening at the border and haven't seen it. And on the other side, there are folks who say, we're not gonna do anything to settle the real issues we have in this country around legalization or a job market for jobs we can't fill until we have total security in the border. Both of those are two sides of the same coin. Neither are realistic, and neither of them solve the problem. So your question of uh, can we get folks in the middle to solve it, the answer, I think, is yes. Well, when will we see legislative text? Um, so that, I'm not sure I can give you a direct answer right now because I don't know the answer, and I'm not going to make anything up. Uh, what I can tell you is that Tom and I put together a framework that we released in December. We have still some rough edges that we're working to, you know, to smooth in terms of that language. We're working through that right now. We're working closely with the other senators who joined us on that CODEL that I led in January. Again, the largest bipartisan CODEL ever to the border, which um, for, for the Senate, which was really exciting. Yeah, and they're it usually shows very partisan. Hmm? They're usually partisan, yes. the border trip. Yeah, I don't do that. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, a, it, was, it was good to have very serious policy-oriented senators on that trip who want to solve problems. 
Um, I expect in the next several months you'll see that framework get more flesh on the bones and turn into a real proposal. And I do want you to know that this is an, this is an important part of the puzzle, is that I'm already talking with colleagues in the House about the work we need them to do Kevin to participate. So Kevin and I talk all the time. <laughs> Still not going to tell you what we talked about. But, you know, there are wonderful folks who are serving on both sides of the aisle in the House. Uh, Tony Gonzalez represents the largest stretch of the border in our country. Juan Siscomani, new member of Congress from Southern Arizona, the district I was born and raised in. Henry Cuellar, uh, Vicente Gonzalez. There's a group of folks who are already working on this in the House, and we're working with them to try and figure out how to get this across the finish line into the president's desk this year. I want to turn to 2024. Uh, you have not yet announced that you are going to run for re-election. I won't be doing that today. Well, you could change your mind. Um, <laughs> nope. But you're also an independent, and you now you do definitely have a challenger should you run in Ruben Gallego. Have you asked Senator Schumer to endorse you should you run for re-election? So I know that you have to ask this question because it's part of what Washington Post does. I know you're not alone. All the reporters are asking this question. But I'm not going to answer it, and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. I think Americans are sick and tired of electoral politics. Like, we just got through a bruising general election. And I think everyone could use a break. So what I'm known for doing is staying focused on the work, putting my head down, getting the unlikely problems solved. I'm going to keep doing that. You're welcome to keep asking the question. I'll keep giving the same answer um, because that's not what I'm focused on right now. I'm 100% focused on solving real problems that Americans are facing right now. And I think that there's a reason Americans hate politics so much. Part of it was what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, right? This like, this devolution, right, into the ugliness. And I think the other reason is the never-ending focus on the election and the who's going to win and who's going to lose and the gotcha this and gotcha that. And I just, um, I choose not to be a part of it. What is the appropriate timeline and what would be your timeline? Well, I'm not making that, that decision. Either, but I'll let you know when I'm ready. Okay. Um, progressives. Democrats um, who aren't happy with you uh, do say um, one of their complaints is that you are too closely tied to donors, that you do what your donors want. Um, they point to the negotiations over Build Back Better and its later iteration uh, regarding tax rates for corporations. What is your response to that? Do you, do you take advice, political advice, from donors? Well, I'm sure this won't come as a surprise to you, and it's not a surprise to anyone in Arizona, but um, I don't do what anyone says. <laughs> I'm 100% focused on doing what I think is right for me mm -hmm. at a personal level, for my state at a political level, and for my country at a patriotic level. That is how I make my decisions. And there are people on both sides of the aisle who don't like it, and that is fine. Not if, my problem. If President Biden does decide to run again for re-election, would you support him? You're back on that whole electoral politics thing again. And I know it's on the cards, I get it, but I'm not going there because I'm 100% focused on doing the work, right? Just getting the work done. And actually, I'm just gonna use the platform since I'm here for a minute. <laughs> I would suggest that maybe if we all did that for a little bit and just focused on like doing the work and solving the challenges, that perhaps the politics would take care of themselves a little bit farther down the road, and perhaps Americans would feel a little more hope or at least connection to what's happening in Washington, D.C., 
that they would feel like maybe the work we're doing connects more to their everyday lives, that we're creating real solutions for them. But I think it's got to be disheartening for folks who wake up in the morning and you know, open their paper or look online or read Twitter and just see stories about the, the political fight rather than the substance of what matters in people's lives. And so um, I'm just trying to make it a trend so we focus on substance and actually work on solving problems. So we're almost out of time, so I have one more question. Do you enjoy your job as a senator, and what, if so, what is your favorite part? Mm. That's, a, that's an excellent question. There are parts of this career that I am incredibly grateful to be a part of. I mean, I'm not gonna go through the laundry list of the things we accomplished over the last two years, but it's long. I didn't even mention the PACT Act, which is the veterans issue, and I didn't mention the Electoral Account Reform Act or Postal Reform, which isn't sexy, but very important. Um, I am so grateful that I have been able to author, lead, and shepherd through massive pieces of legislation that have made a real difference in the lives of the people that I serve. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. I'm also very, very grateful to have an office at home in Arizona full of incredibly talented social workers whose job it is every day is to answer the phone or answer an email or meet with individuals who are struggling because something is going wrong at the federal level that is hurting their lives. And a social worker's job, you know, is to like burst through all the bureaucracy and just like solve the problem and get things done. Um, so there's a trend here, as you can see. And the social workers on my team do a phenomenal job of this. Like we help people solve their problems in Arizona and it makes me so, so happy. Hmm. There are things about the job that I really dislike. We are out of time, but what is it? Name three. <laughs> I can just name one. Okay. And it is the never ending pressure to focus on doing what you are told by party leaders at the expense of doing what is right for your state and for your country. And I find that to be dangerous. Dangerous for our current government setting and dangerous for the future of our democracy. And I would love if more people would be willing to just do what they believe is right rather than be scared that they'll be punished by one political party or the other or punished by activists who are upset and tweeting about you. And I guess what I would say is this, that I invite everyone to jump in the water. It's quite warm where I'm at. And it's actually a wonderful place to be where you're focused 100% on doing what you think is right, trying to serve your country, and not caring about where the political chips fall. Senator Cinema, thank you so much. We are over time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Stay with us in a moment. My colleague Jonathan Capehart will be here to interview White House Senior Advisor Mitch Landrew after the short break. All right, good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor here at the Washington Post. We continue our first look at 2023 with a focus on the Biden agenda in conversation with White House Senior Advisor and Infrastructure Coordinator Mitch Landrieu, otherwise known as the former mayor of New Orleans. Great. Mitch, welcome back to Washington uh, it's Post It's great Live. to be with you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. 
So we're, when it comes to infrastructure, we're talking about $1.2 trillion in spending. Right. You've traveled the country talking to governors, mayors, local officials, city planners. What are you hearing more often about what infrastructure improvements they need most in their communities? They generally say, give me more. More what? More everything. <laughs> they have, as you know, this is a this is a a big piece of change. One point two trillion dollars is the most that the federal government has invested in infrastructure in the last fifty years, and people would argue in the history of the country. Uh, and it is a opportunity to completely rebuild the country as we know it, with investments in roads and bridges and airports and ports, waterways, clean air and clean water. I want to stop on this for a second because this is coursing across the country in a very powerful way. Um, people have a right to clean air and to safe water, but not everybody in America has it. And this is true about whether there's um, lead um, in the water through pipes all across the country, whether they're brownfield, Superfund sites, Great Lakes. So there's that. And then you finally high-speed internet. You've heard the president say this many, many times. A little girl does not need to be sitting in the back of her mama's car outside of McDonald's to have access to the internet so that she can do her homework because access to technology um, and access to knowledge levels of playing field. And then finally, um, making sure that we have are building a clean energy economy. So that's 375 new programs uh, in the bill that are getting funded. Some of the money's going to the governors. Some of the money is in competitive programs. But essentially, what we're trying to do is build a team of people, as I said just in the, in the introduction, where governors and mayors and the White House are all on the same page, essentially singing from the same song in the same playbook at the same church service, getting the money to the ground and having the projects come out. And we're now 14 months into this. We have 20,000 projects right now that have been funded in the country that are in some level of formation. And, uh, and you really kind of see it crisscrossing the country. The major challenges we have, um, workforce. Everybody says to me, look, do we have enough people to do the jobs? Are the folks in the neighborhood where I live trained to do the job to build the thing that's happening in our particular community? And that's going to be a challenge for us. But these are all great problems to have. The biggest problem was not having the money to invest in the infrastructure that was threatening the economic growth of the nation. And the president said, as you have heard him say many times, if we uh, want to be strong and, and have our nation strong, you can't do that with a strong economy. And you cannot have a strong economy if you don't have strong infrastructure. And that's how you build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, providing millions of jobs to folks in America, many of which don't require a college education. And we're well on our way. Well, let me dive into the, the worker portion of, of your answer, because there is a shortage of skilled workers across the country. Um, what are you doing to train people to fill these jobs? Well, let me say this. First of all, every one of these jobs requires some level of skill. For some reason, we say unskilled. But every one of these jobs requires some level of expertise, but it doesn't require a college education to actually do the job. So think about what we just said. In the rebuilding of roads and bridges and airports and ports, we've been doing that for a long time, and we understand how to train folks to do that. But if you're building a clean energy economy and you're building hydrogen hubs or you're doing carbon capture or you're laying high-speed internet or you're doing things you know, like you're electrifying the economy by now battery manufacturing, sometimes those skills that we have right now are not transferable. And so we are really, we're going to talk to the governors tomorrow and the mayors about making sure that even though this is a national problem, it's not necessarily just a federal response. In other words, it has to be a localized response because the focus has to be different from town to town depending on what's being done. And so 
there's a substantial amount of money in this bill for workforce training, but it's not enough. But we're working with the governors and the mayors and the community and technical schools and, of course, labor unions that the president has talked about quite a lot through their apprenticeships programs to actually find individuals, train them really, really well, train them specifically for what's coming our way, and make sure that, as we said, with a diverse workforce, women in the workforce, people of color in the workforce, then we need the tools to get them in the workforce, like childcare and transportation. Putting all of those things together will help us build the kind of workforce that's necessary to help America win the future. So I'm listening to you as a White House official, um, and part of me is thinking, well, he's supposed to say these things because this is your job. It White is House my job. Official. Now, put your hat on as a, a former mayor and a former mayor of a major city, former mayor of New Orleans. Is the infrastructure uh, funding really being directed to the right needs? Well, listen, when I, when, if you're a mayor of a city and you have a federal government that doesn't believe in investing in the people of America, much less the communities of America, you have nowhere to go and nothing to do. If you're the mayor of a city and you have a governor that doesn't believe in that at all, then you have nothing to do. But when, you have, when you're the mayor of a city, little town, little community, whatever it might be, and you have a president and you have a Congress and you have governors and then everybody's on the same page, you got a chance to rip and run. And that's pretty much the response that we've gotten from everybody in the country. Now, I'm not trying to be overtly political here. It does not matter to the president whether congressmen and women or senators voted for the bill. It, do, it does not. He has instructed me and everybody else, make sure this money gets to, get onto the ground and nobody gets left behind. Um, but having said that, it is clearly true that even the people that voted no want the dough. All of them. <laughs> and he said this the other night. He said this during the State of the Union speech. He said, look, I know many of you didn't vote for this bill. I'm very thankful the 14 of you that did, and it was a bipartisan in that regard. But we're not worrying about that. But it, and it is critically important that as we get this down to the ground, there is a what I call um, the execution phase, coordination, cooperation, and collaboration. Now, just think about this on the federal level, state level, and local level. So to effectuate that, We've had to create a model in the White House that allowed us to sing off of the same playbook. I call it horizontal and vertical integration, but singing off the same page of the same playbook actually registers a little bit more easy. But let me explain to you what that is. So as, as the head of the coordinating entity that's supposed to do this, we have 14 cabinet secretaries that are responsive to the request to get this money to the ground. So we have had 16 meetings with cabinet secretaries and their deputy secretaries, which we meet with almost on a daily basis, to figure out how, for example, if you're gonna lay down 500,000 electrical vehicle charging stations, which we're gonna do, that Department of Transportation and the Department of Energy meet all the time, coordinate. If we're laying high-speed internet, um, we wanna make sure that the FCC is working with the Department of Commerce and they're working with the Department of Agriculture, so they are speaking with one voice. I've asked each one of the governors on behalf of the president in order to help coordinate them to appoint an infrastructure coordinator on the state level whose job it is to coordinate all of their agencies, and then we've talked to all of the mayors. So then you bring them into communion with each other, you make sure they're on the same page, they have the same plan, and they send those plans up to Washington that are already coordinated before we get here. Now what we need to do is make sure that they, the plans reflect the president's values. And I would like to speak to, to this a bit. When the president says we're gonna, we're gonna build a better America, it's the better part that folks should kind of pay attention to. The build part's important and how to, but it's about where, what, and who. A better America means building with equity in mind. And equity means making sure that people have been left out, people in Lowndes County, Alabama, that don't have access to indoor plumbing, 
tribal communities, African-American communities that have been forgotten, rural communities that are both white and African-American um, in places that don't have clean air and water. You governors have to give us a plan that makes sure that we see all of those people. Governor of Mississippi, talk to me about what's going on in Jackson. The governor in Texas, talk to me about what's going on in Houston. If you want to lay down um, a, a highway in the middle of an African-American community and dissect that community like we've done, well, maybe we're not going to do that again. So send us the plans. We'll look at the plans. When we approve the plans, then we'll actually start working together. So equity is one. The second is a better America means using products that are made in America. So many of you know this. Um, we basically started kind of letting folks make stuff for us, you know, and send it back to us and charging us a lot more and hollowing out small communities, especially in rural America. And in the South, where I'm from, you see this all over the place, where you have these towns that are just kind of, their downtown's kind of gone. We want to bring manufacturing back. Is the president succeeding? Thank you for that question. 800,000 <laughs> 800, new manufacturing jobs, 200,000 more than we had before. So there's great evidence that this idea of using products that are made in America is working. Third part, make sure that you have great labor standards. The president thinks that trickle-down economics is a myth. It doesn't work. He wants to build stuff from the ground up, which means he wants to invest in folks that are on the ground. And high labor standards are really important. And to the extent that you can use union labor, which he believes built the middle class and the middle class built America is important. And the fourth part about building a better America is actually thinking about protecting yourself from the bad things that we know are going to happen in the climate. Now, I'm from Louisiana. I know a lot about hurricanes. I know a lot about tornadoes. I know a lot about water that can hurt you if you disrespect it. You're never going to beat Mother Nature. Quit trying to work against her. Figure out how to work with her. You see this with the incredible you know, earthquakes that are just happening you know, to our neighbors um, where 15,000 people were killed. But we have those same things in, in the United States of America, which is why I was at the Golden Gate Bridge with Speaker Pelosi spending $600 million to actually put brake pads on the Golden Gate Bridge to sustain the, the, the dynamic challenge that you have when earthquakes hit. So the fourth thing is, is to build back with resilience and strength so that we can protect ourselves because we know of the dramatic changes we have in climate. So when people come to us and they ask us for money, we're like, if you want to build a better, stronger country that puts us in a position to win the future against any country in the world, these are the component parts. And it's an open book test. And if they have those kinds of things, you're much more likely to get a yes rather than a no on the competitive side of the $1.2 trillion, which represents about 40% of the spend. Okay. Was that so too long an given, answer given for you? Given that answer, I have no more questions because <laughs> yeah, uh, you hit, I had these, you answered sorry. a lot of questions. So, but the one thing yeah. in, that, in that laundry list of, of things you mentioned, one thing you didn't mention was inflation. And last year in an interview with Bloomberg Television, you voiced concern that very high inflation, uh, the very high inflation rate would increase the overall cost of many of the projects um, that you're overseeing. With inflation ebbing, is that still a concern? Well, the, first of all, you remember last year, everything, every, every time anybody had a conversation, it had to be about inflation and it was going in the wrong direction. Um, and they said it was the president's fault and they forgot to talk about COVID and forgot to talk about the war in the Ukraine and the fact that the breadbasket of the world was challenged. And <clears throat> as we now look at where we are today, which is not anywhere close to being a recession, 12.1 million jobs, the unemployment rate as low as it's been in 50 years, wages gone really up. Economists have really kind of cooled down on a prediction that has not come true. Now, 
Inflation continues to be a really serious problem for America, and the president is working on lowering costs every day, which is why he talks about prescription drugs, keeping the cost of insulin down, making sure that health care is available, and the other things that we can do, lowering gas prices, $1.50 a gallon lower than it was some time ago. And by the way, for the last six months, inflation has actually been going down every month. So that's the reality as it exists today. Having said that, when anything costs more, it's a problem. But the infrastructure bill is anti-inflationary because the investment is over a long period of time. And although the projects today are affected by it, as inflation ebbs over time, we're going to be able to build more stuff longer. And I'm hoping that in the future, uh, when people see how wonderful this particular thing is and that there really is no Republican or Democratic way to fill a pothole, you just need to get the damn thing filled, right? Because it's a pain in the butt. Can I say mm -hmm. that? On you just, you just All right, did. Sorry. <laughs> if, I'm, well, I'm glad I checked before I said it. <laughs> but, but what's going to happen is it's going to grow the economy. It's, it's not going to diminish the economy. And so, yeah, you, you're concerned about it, but it, you can't build this thing out of the context of what's going on in the real world in real time. But we think over time it's going to ease up because it's a five, seven, ten year program. And my expectation is if we get this right, this is why it's critically important for all of us to work together on the one thing that everybody agrees on uh, in this town um, is that Congress will see the benefit of it. The American people will want more of it and we'll continue to invest because this is the one thing that's going to put us in a position to win the future um, uh, of the 21st century. So uh, since this conversation has gone on, you've, you've gone ticked through a litany of successes, a litany of programs and policies and, and philosophies of, of the president that are supposed to inure to the benefit of the American people. And yet, Washington Post ABC poll this week shows that 62% of Americans feel President Biden hasn't achieved much in office. Why is that? Why, why does this poll not reflect basically anything, any of the good stuff that you just talked about? Can I, I know you're interviewing me, but can I ask you a question? Um, <laughs> are you, is, is anybody really surprised by that? Like, I'm surprised that you're surprised. That seems to me to be a question that is just so curious because everybody knows that it takes a long time for things, A, to take root and for the public to become aware of it for very, very simple reasons. Anybody, you got any moms and dads in here? Y'all got kids, right? You got carpool, you got tons of stuff going on. You got COVID. We have, you know, the trauma that we've gone through in this country for the last six years will historically be one of the six most traumatic years that this country has gone through in quite a long time. We have these inflection points in history, you know, over time. Maybe there have been eight or nine or 10 of them, but the last six years will go down in history as being really the most cataclysmic that we've seen, at least in the last 50. Think about when President Biden took office. There was an active insurrection underway in the United States of America. That's not a political statement, it's a fact. That's what the hearings were about. That was actually happening. While between the time he got elected and the time he took office, you just learned as much about it as you could on January 6th, and you still don't know everything about it, but you now know there was an active insurrection. This president had to put a cabinet together. What did he do? He put really one of the most capable, most diverse cabinets, by the way, which has more women in it than men for the first time in the history of the country, together. We took office at a time when COVID was ravaging the United States of America. Only 2 million people were vaccinated. Now 200 million people were vaccinated. We had an economy that was crashing which the president stood up with the American Rescue Plan that basically helped feed America, 
help make sure that firemen and EMS folks could stand up. And I will remember for you, since everybody here has a short memory, that American citizens were standing in line waiting for food starting at 3 o'clock in the morning in Manhattan when, when the, the, the food lines didn't open until 12. All right, and then after that, we were basically in a stasis in Washington, D.C., trying to get bills passed. And so when people of America were thinking about all of that stuff and all the challenges that they were going through, they could be forgiven for not really caring too much about what we did in Washington, D.C., because we talk a lot and we don't get anything done. And so now we are 14 months into this. There are 20,000 projects coming out of the ground. And, you know, people go, well, I really haven't been paying that much attention to it until the president, I think you will agree with me, brought the heat the other night at the State of the Union address. Like my guy, don't like my guy. He showed up in a really big way the other night and delivered 72 minutes of hell, right, about where this country was gone and what we did with people who were sitting in the audience being a little bit less nice than he was trying to be with them as he tried to bring the country together. And people over time will see this. I'm not saying that polls don't matter. But if you go back and look at the polls of all of the presidents over time, you will see that his polls and where he is on approval ratings are not horribly inconsistent with where other presidents were at the time. And you will recall, or I will recall for you, that before the elections a couple of months ago, everybody was you know, saying, this guy's dead. And you know there was going to be hell to pay after the midterms. And that hasn't turned out to be true either. The one thing that has turned out to be true about Joseph R. Biden is that he has always been counted out and he has always won. That's what you know. And the only poll that really counts in terms of whether this stuff works or not is if there is another election day on that day, who they're running against, what the vision, the president's vision is, and whether or not we were actually able to hit our marks. And we have demonstrated time and time again on all the things that have mattered to this country when people were running. How many jobs did you create? What's the unemployment rate? Did you really hit your mark? How many pieces of legislation have you passed? How do you compare? When you compare him to every other president at this time in terms of actual success, not perception, but real success, he ranks at the top of the presidents that have ever served. Um, we've got six minutes left. And, and given how loquacious you Look, are, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I know this is going to be the last question, because I want to switch gears. I want to switch gears in all, in all seriousness. <laughs> do y'all want 30 second sound bites? <laughs> no, 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 no. What we do. I, no, I'm totally loving this. But Good, I want to bring you. you back to when you and I um, spoke in May of 2017. I interview, interviewed you about your removal of Confederate statues uh, in, from New Orleans. You were still mayor of New Orleans. And you told me then that when confronting race, quote, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you can't go around it, you actually have to walk through it. And walking through it is hard and it's painful and it's uncomfortable, but when you come out the other side, we're all gonna be better off for it. And I thought of this when um, I was listening to President Biden during the State of the Union and he talked about the talk black parents have to have with their children. Why was that important for him to do from your perspective? Well, I know I'm sitting here as a senior advisor to the President of the United States, and I can't completely undo that cloak. Um, but my comments now are, are mine, and to the extent that I can attribute it to him, I will. But my strong feeling has always been, based on my life's experience and the things that I know and the things that I don't know, is that um, slavery is uh, this nation's original sin. And racism is and continues to be its Achilles heel. 
we do not know how to talk about race in America because it's too painful for us. You have prominent people now who think the idea about how to deal with race is A, to ignore it, or to not let people read about it. Um, I, don't, I don't understand the theory behind you can get smarter by not reading a book. I, I can't quite get that. I just went to St. Matthias, but that confuses me a little bit. Um, but as we, you and I have talked a lot about race and the work that I did before I got here, it seems to me that we made a covenant with each other and that we have a continuous government that's supposed to reinforce that covenant. And that covenant is pretty simple, and it's an idea that actually the president talked about the other night in the State of the Union speech that what separates our country from every other country in the world is that this country is an idea. It's not really a place. It is a thing, but, but America itself is the idea, and the idea is really simple. We all come to the table of democracy as equals, and it is a fair criticism of however great this country is or has been or can be that that promise has not really been fulfilled to many people in this country. Uh, and in fact, there is a lot of evidence that there has been and continues to be a sequela from the institutional designs that have existed. And so we jump forward um, into this. We were having a conversation, and then we're yelling at each other. Uh, and then we still haven't gotten past it. And then you continue to have the incredible deaths that we've had. I could start back before Emmett Till if you wanted to start back before the lynchings. We don't have to do that. You all are all smart. You can think about it. Um, but the relationship between the African-American community uh, and police departments in this country have been fraught with tremendous difficulty. The George Floyd murder uh, with Derek Chauvin is still in everybody's mind. And then, of course, Tyree Nichols was murdered the other day by five or six or seven or eight police officers who were acting uh, in the wrong way with uniforms on. But they murdered him. Um, and I had the... Um, honor of representing the president, along with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and the vice president at Tyree Nichols' funeral. Every white person in America should be able to understand that when you look in a mother's eyes, whether she be white or black or Hispanic or, uh, or Asian, and that mother has had to watch her son get stomped to death, you have to find some level of communion in that. And when you start talking about, well, the police are not the police, well, you have to start saying, well, not in America. That shouldn't happen here. And we shouldn't be having this conversation over and over again. So the president did address this the other day in the State of the Union speech. And the truth of the matter is I have never been more proud and more honored to serve him because he said two reasons. We obviously love and care and think a lot about men and women who put their lives on the line every day and might not come home. As a mayor, I actually had to go to the funeral of a police officer who was shot in the head uh, and, and sit with his wife. So that's a painful experience. But it is also true that police officers who, who act the wrong way, who do the wrong thing, who are not acting as police officers do, should be removed because that is a crime too. And he spoke directly to that, that we can have justice and we can have peace. But you can't have justice and peace if the community does not trust police officers. So he spoke to that issue. But he said something that no president's ever said, much less from the well of the people's house, is that a lot of white people don't understand that African-American community members have to have something called the talk. Now, i got five kids. I've never had to have the conversation with them. It's usually like, you better get your butt in the house before 12 o'clock, or I'm going to know where you are, and I'm going to come get you. And if you're going to be late, call me. That's the extent of my talk. But if you're an African-American parent in this country, the talk that you have to have with your teenage son is that, hey, look, be careful. But if you get pulled over by the police officers, you have to not make any moves. 
you have to put your hands on the wheel or you have to put your hands on the dashboard. Do not, do not be disrespectful. Now, I want you to think about, as a white person, what that would feel like if you had to talk to your kid and the terror that you have. And the president actually spoke to that. And that's the first time that the nation has actually, most of the nation, that is not African-American, has heard somebody, much less a white man who happened to be the president, speak to that issue. And I think he did that because he wanted to say, look, we've got to put ourselves in each other's shoes. That as Americans, we actually have to love each other and care for each other. And unless and until we do, we're not going to have that level of confidence with each other. And this is part of being who we are as America. This is what he's talking about when he says, restore the soul of the nation, which is one of the most important reasons why he ran. And one of the things he wants to continue to do, as he said to us, let him finish his work. Mitch Landrieu, former mayor of New Orleans, White House senior advisor and infrastructure coordinator, thank you You're welcome. for joining thank you. us. Thank you all for having me. And in a moment, the co-authors of the early 202 newsletter, Leanne Caldwell and Theo Meyer, will have an interview with Utah Governor Spencer Cox after this short video. Welcome back. Uh, I'm now here joined, well, first with my co-author of the early 202, Theodoric Meyer, or Theo, as he is also called, and Utah Governor, Republican of Utah, Governor Cox. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really Thank appreciate you, it. Thank you, Theo. Thanks for having me. Of course. All these people came to see Mitch. This is great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They came to see Theo. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. So, um, you were here for the State of the Union. Yes. I saw that this was your first State of the Union address. It was. So what did you think? Probably my last. I don't really? know. I didn't get banned or anything, I promise. So does that mean um, you're not running for Senate? It does mean I'm not running for Senate. <laughs> okay. Yes, it, it absolutely does. Uh, it, was, it was fascinating. I grew up, I'm kind of a political nerd, studied political science in, in, in college, and it was, it was really cool, surreal to kind of be in that room. Um, but also, I think all State of the Unions are mostly terrible. They're bad speeches. They're just, mm -hmm. it, you, when you're writing for a plot, lines every 30 seconds it, it leads to just bad speech writing and uh, and so uh, I, you have to get there you know I'm 40 minutes early just people watching and that was fascinating and then you stand up and you're like why are we standing up oh the Supreme Court's coming in and so it was uh, it was it was really fascinating and, and an interesting speech interesting hard to hear in the yeah, gallery it is hard like to I hear. had to strain to hear and if there was any applause or murmuring uh, as, as there was some I think <laughs> I missed like 15% of the speech so uh, I need to go back and watch those parts and you even saw one that was actually one of the better ones. This is high energy, the, I don't know, there's been lots of criticism of the shouting at the president, but there was some banter. There was definitely energy, yes, yes. yes. It felt more like we were in the UK or something than, mm -hmm. than uh, the traditional State of the Union. Yeah. So on a scale of terrible to not terrible, where do you place the State of the Union? Uh, <laughs> Semi-terrible? I don't know. Is that on the scale? I don't know. It's, again, I, as somebody who loves speeches and, and, and listening to kind of historic speeches, it's just, I, it's just changed over the years. It's so rare to have anything that kind of elevates um, and, 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 and inspires. It's, it's so kind of rote and traditional now. It's like, oh, he's going to point to someone up there and we're going to tell a little anecdote. And, I, I don't know. It just feels like we need to mix it up a little bit. That's all. So you're in town because of the Republican Governors Association and the National Governors Association meetings. Tomorrow you're going to be at the White House. Um, 
if you have the chance to talk to President Biden, have yes. some words for him. Um, what are you going to ask of him? What do you want to tell him? Oh, well, I will get a chance to talk to him because okay. I'm the vice chair of the National Governors Association. And the tradition is that the chair and vice chair each get to ask a question. And so okay. we'll get that opportunity. And uh, I, I've been meeting with some of my colleagues talking about what we, we would ask. And uh, I, I think there's a couple things. I think, again, from the Republican side, the questions will be focused around energy and energy policy. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we've been focused on critical minerals and, and, and getting those supply chains back here, relying on China and African, Chinese-owned mines in Africa for our supply chain when it comes to critical minerals, I think is is very discouraging and, and damaging and and, uh, and and a national security threat. And and I know Secretary Granholm has spoken about this a lot, the, the Secretary of Energy, and, and and agrees with us. So I think we'll we'll be talking a lot about energy and, and that piece. And, and then the, he he brought it up. I mean, he talked about fentanyl and and in his in his speech, uh, the issues that we're seeing with fentanyl. The, the the significant increases in, in deaths, overdoses, um, and, and we know where that supply is coming from, and, and what are we going to do to make sure that that supply is not coming across the border? How can we secure our borders? And, and obviously, there's an immigration piece to that. Um, something I talked to him about last year. Uh, he said he would call me. He hasn't called me yet. It's been a year, so I'm going to give him my <laughs> phone number again and see if we can't <laughs> chat this time. Well, if you get a single question, then do you go energy? Do you go? Yeah. Fentanyl? So I, I think decided? I think I'll go kind of the the fentanyl piece, and then we get another. So then we have another Republican, another Democrat ask a question. I think we'll we'll probably talk about the energy piece uh, with our with uh, Governor Stitt, who's uh, who's in town as well from Oklahoma, and we'll we'll uh, have the honor of asking that uh, that second question. So energy. Speaking of energy, um, the state of Utah is has a big issue with climate change. Yeah. Um, so keeping on the topic of energy, do you think that there needs to be more fossil fuel, natural gas development, even as your state, which we will also get to, is sure. suffering from climate change activity? Yeah, I, I do, and and so does President Biden. Um, he he went off script a little bit uh, during his speech and, and and said that we know fossil fuels are not going away right now, and and it's really important. All we all we do um, when when and and unfortunately he is he's not done any leasing, um, and even President Obama was doing uh, you know 100 leases a year. All we're doing is is outsourcing that uh, that oil and gas to very bad people um, who also have no environmental um, safety precautions or environmental procedures in place to protect the, the environment. So we, we're, we're exporting uh, this this issue now to places like Venezuela and, and to places like Russia and and Iran, and so we we have to do this here. Um, but but again, we, we're always presented with these false choices, like we have to stop all oil and gas exploration right now, or it, or we have to just just do oil and gas forever, and and that's not the case. Uh, unfortunately, there are far too many people who don't understand baseload energy and how important baseload energy is, which is also why we're we're now seeing our grid um, struggling in so many places because. You can't replace baseload with uh, with wind and solar. You just can't. And wind and solar is very important, and we're doing as much of that in Utah as anywhere else. Um, but until we get very serious about 
a, a real alternative, which is nuclear, um, for our baseload, then uh, we will continue to struggle and we'll have to rely on fossil fuels even longer than, than many people would, would like us to. So we, we can do this, but we can do it in a smart way, in a way that just doesn't hurt the poorest among us when we're, we're just raising prices without an alternative. And, um, and again, importing in other countries gas and oil when we have so much here. Mm -hmm. Joel Ferry, who you tapped last year as uh, executive director of Utah's Department of Natural Resources, described the situation with the Great Salt Lake, uh, which the water level is declining, as a potential environmental nuclear bomb. Do you see the situation as that dire? Well, it, it has been very dire, yes. Um, and, and I will tell you that um, I'm actually less concerned now than I was a year ago at this time because we've seen a real paradigm shift in the state of Utah, not just with the, the residents of Utah, and they have. We, uh, we, we saved uh, tens of billions of gallons of water this past summer with people cutting back on their water usage. It was, it was incredible to see uh, and really heartening to see that people can come together to work on an issue and solve a problem. Um, the other reason I'm so excited is there's been a paradigm shift with our legislature, uh, a big shift. Last session, so a year ago, we were able to get 12, uh, 12 conservation bills through, more than we've ever done probably combined, uh, $500 million in conservation money. We've asked for the same amount this year. It looks like we're going to get that, maybe even a little more, which we're very excited about. There is a unified commitment amongst, uh, amongst state leaders, um, legislators, and the public to make sure that we're protecting this incredible uh, asset, this resource that we have in, in the Great Salt Lake. Now, what we do know is that the, the lake is cyclical. The, the, uh, since, since the early pioneers arrived and we have written records of the, the depth of the lake, we know that it, it, gets, it, it goes up and it goes down, and it goes up and it goes down. Now, the problem is the trend line is, is trending down. So 1964 was the last time we had lake levels this low. In fact, we got a foot below that, a little more than a foot below that. And, um, 20 years later, the lakes were flooding in 1984, and we were installing uh, we were installing pumps to try to save businesses and homes. So we we don't know what the next 20 years will look like from a, from a climate change perspective. And so I have to operate. We have to operate as if this drought is going to continue. Now, some more good news is that we are having the best winter we've had in 20 years. Um, if you like to ski, please come out. There is so much snow right now, which is which there is, is great news. There is none around us. here. There, I, there is none around here, which is also fantastic, by the way. I'm enjoying my days here. It's it's very nice, but. Um, but, but this record snowfall fall we're having will help tremendously, but we need two or three years of record snowfall um, like this to replace what's missing from the lake. And so th these legislative changes that we're making, for example, forever in most Western states, we've had a, a law that with your water rights, you have to use it or you could potentially lose your water rights. That's a terrible incentive in a desert to, uh, to, to make it so people have to use their water, even if they don't want to or don't need to, they have to use it so they don't lose that water right. We've changed that. Um, this year, we're working on getting actual water rights to the lake, something that's never happened before. And then agriculture optimization. That's where we get the biggest bang for our buck. The ag community participating. We have the technology now to grow food uh, with, with less water. Um, but it, it, it costs money, and farmers aren't the wealthiest. So we're using uh, some of our state surpluses to as grants, matching grants, to help farmers get the new technology, and then getting that water to the, uh, to the great soil. Salt Lake and our other reservoir systems. Uh, Utah, southern Utah, consumes some of the highest per capita of water. 
Um, and there is a huge problem, not just with the Great Salt Lake, which is not necessarily drinking water, but the Colorado River, yes. the entire, entire Southwest is dealing with this problem. Um, so what more can Utah do considering how little water there is, not just in Utah, but around the entire Southwest, um, California, Arizona, and uh, Nevada? Yeah, so what you're going to see, and what I talked about with the new laws, they, they impact Southern Utah as well. Um, you'll see significant more conservation, uh, real changes in the amount of ornamental grass that's being grown, um, significant reductions there. Uh, we, we have the first, actually, several municipalities and other states have this, but we have the first statewide turf buyback program um, that we, we implemented last year. We're getting additional funding this year. So we'll be replacing existing grass with, uh, with with, with more um, water-wise plants um, and, and uh, shrubberies uh, to really changing the landscape of what people have been used to. We, look, we've been very fortunate in Utah for a long time. Um, the, the people that came before us invested significantly in, in, in reservoir systems that, uh, that meant we had excess water. We didn't have to have any, any, um, any laws restricting use. And, and we've been very fortunate. We, over the last 10 years, have been the fastest growing state in the nation. Per capita, we've added more people than any other state. The census uh, showed us that. And with that growth, especially in Southern Utah, I, I know you drove through Southern Utah as a child coming from Las Vegas, and it used to, St. George used to be a tiny town. Now it's, it's sprawling, it's exploded. People have discovered it. People want to live there. And that means significant changes in the way that we use water. We're also implementing water reuse systems. Uh, we've got a significant ask from the legislature. It looks like we're gonna get the money Money, uh, to invest in infrastructure uh, that will allow Southern Utah to get more out of the water they have and draw less from the Colorado River. And, and that's going to help everyone um, downstream as well. And, and the, the focus in the West, by the way, I think it was UCLA who did the study that, that found that this is the worst drought, the worst 20 year drought since the year 800 AD. So we're in the middle of a 1200 year drought uh, weather experience, climate experience. And, and so we have to make these significant changes. Again, the, the drought could end this year. This could be the end of our 20-year drought, or it could be halfway through uh, a 40-year drought. Yeah, I, I don't know that, and none of the experts can tell me that. So we have to act as if that's the case, it is going to continue, and uh, we're committed to investing in that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the challenge for farmers. I know you are a farmer yourself. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how Utah's water challenges have affected your farm and what your biggest concerns are from that perspective? Yes. Yeah, so, so agriculture is our, our largest user uh, of water, and um, that's a good thing. I, I always have to remind people, like, you know that food requires water as an input. That's, that's just, it's, it's pretty important to understand. And we, we support our ag community. Now, I have a very small farm. Uh, I want, want to be very clear. You know, we don't rely on our farm to make a living while others do. So I'm much more worried about those farmers, those that this is their livelihood, this is their only source of income. And, and this is where the ag optimization is so important to us because we know we can grow the same amount of food with a fraction of the water that we're using right now. So these investments really do go a long way. Just with the ag optimization that we um, implemented last year, uh, the, the, the net savings of that is like is a medium
medium-sized reservoir in, in our state that would that would provide drinking water for you know for hundreds of thousands of people. That's how much we were able to save in in, in one year just with implementing technology. And and there's a huge appetite for it. And so we we know we can do much more. And the ag community is ready to do that. I'll tell you in our farm. Um, in a dry year, we are the first ones to um, to have those restrictions and to really draw back. So instead of getting three crops of, of hay, we only get one or two. Um, that's the big impact. So it, it's felt most with our farmers and uh, that drives up prices. It drives up the price of food, which then gets passed on to consumers. And so it, it really does impact everyone. So if we can help our ag community produce more with less, then, uh, then not only will they benefit, but so will all of us as, as consumers of their products. I want to ask about, um, you vetoed a bill about uh, excluding transgender girls from sports. Yes. Um, but you just supported a bill that would uh, ban uh, gender affirming health care, medical care. Correct. Why did you do that? Well, there's a couple reasons, and, and it, this is a hard one. This is a this is a hard issue. It's a hard issue to even have a, a discussion about. Everyone is so passionate about this one, and I've I've always tried. Look, I am an ally to the LGBTQ community. Um, we have great relationships. I'm very close with uh, with the, the advocates in our state. We work together on these bills. Um, missing from all of the reporting is that there were there were actually two bills uh, that would have done this. One was um, was much more extreme than the one that passed. That bill failed in the legislature again. Didn't get any press, which I think is interesting, and, and, and we can ask why. Um, but, but this one did pass, and, and I did sign it. Um, when on this issue, I have found that it is virtually impossible to have a rational conversation with people about this. People's minds are already made up um, and in, in very passionate ways. It's, it's kind of a third rail right now. And so I, um, I actually went outside of the United States where the culture wars aren't blazing as, as much as they are now and looked at what was happening in some other countries. Again, very limited reporting about what's happening in Sweden, what's happening in Finland, what's happening in France, what's happening in the UK. Uh, in, in extremely limited reporting here. There was a New York Times article um, several months ago last year that, that, that mentioned it. And, and the lack of science and information that we have and the potential damage that we are doing to younger and younger people and the possibility of social contagion when it comes to um, these, th th these transitions. Uh, very different than what we were seeing 10 years ago. That's why in these places, the, the best scientists, their national departments of health are saying, we're not sure about this. We need to push pause, make sure that we're not doing any harm, and, uh, and step back from this. And that's all we've done in the state of Utah. We're pushing pause, gathering the best science we can before we make a decision on how we're going to proceed. When you say social contagion, do you mean that it's more uh, societal than, than um, uh What's the word? Um, genetic. That's what the Swedish are saying, and that's what the French are saying, and that's what the Finns are saying. And there seems to be a tremendous amount of evidence that that's the case. Um, what we're seeing right now is very, especially among young women who are, are making this decision, um, there are lots of, lots of evidence, again, that these numbers are exploding. And we're seeing that in Utah. We're seeing it in, in Western countries across the world. And that this is very different than 10 years ago, the people that were transitioning at that time, that there are lots of 
lots of mental health issues um, besides the uh, the gender dysphoria piece, and uh, and that's why these other countries have decided that they need to step back and push pause. Um, and so that that's where I went to look at what was happening elsewhere, where there isn't this um, societal conflict as much as a, a scientific research that's happening in in those areas. Mm -hmm. You believe in limited government. Why did you see it as the role of the government to step in here rather than deferring to doctors and the medical community? Look, because, um, because we often, when looking at youth, again, we, we didn't do anything for anybody over the age of 18. This is just for, for people under the age of 18 until we make sure that we have the science correct on this, that we're not causing more harm. And uh, there are more and more researchers saying, yeah, we're not so sure that what we're doing is the right thing at this time. And so that, you know, government intervenes in, with, with young people all of the time. Um, the, the, it's very common that we, we, we do what we can to protect young people, and that's what this bill attempts to do. I, again, it's, it's not a forever prohibition. We will revisit this um, as we collect more data. There, uh, as, as an administration, we have a duty under this bill to work with our, our researchers across the state uh, to gather as much scientific information as we can from studies that are being done, trying to look at the, uh, there, there are very few, unfortunately, longitudinal studies that are showing the, the difference there with, uh, with with uh, bone density and, and, and other issues, what the long-term consequences of this are. Um, but, uh, but, but again, when, when you're 18, you can, you can make those decisions. As, as the brain is further developed, um, then, then you can make those decisions for yourself. The Republican Party right now um, is at an inflection point, uh, unclear which direction it's going to be. Um, you mentioned the culture wars. Uh, do, do Republicans need to lean more into the culture wars in order to gain supporters, especially within the no. base, within voters? Is, are the culture wars an important part no. of the Republican Party? No, the culture wars are stupid. I, they are. I, they're stupid on the right. They're stupid on the left. No, we we don't need to tear each other apart more. This is not helping anyone. Um, it, it's not making. It's. I believe. I still believe that there is an exhausted majority out there that is so tired of the divisiveness, uh, of, the, of the toxicity of our politics. I believe that there are people out there who still care about their neighbors. I believe that um, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, think they disagree more than they actually do because their politicians thrive on that happening, on, on helping them to believe that is the case. Uh, I, I just, I, I, we're, we're just, I, I think we're better than this at our core. Um, I, I know that, that, that politics is, is, is downstream of culture. We hear that over and over again, but I, I, I think that, um, I, th I think that some of our culture is downstream of politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, that politicians are really good at dividing us and uh, using anger and fear to, uh, to motivate voters. And, uh, and I do think it happens on both sides. And I think most people are tired of it, but we're not giving them any other alternatives. So what do they do? Well, we'll let the Republicans try it for a couple years, and then we'll get mad at them. So then we'll let the Democrats try it for a couple years, and then we'll get mad at them because it's the same stuff. It's just the opposite sides of a dumb coin. I don't know, that doesn't work, but um, that's, that's what it is we're facing right now. And I think, it's, I think, I think politics is an embarrassment to, um, to our country right now. Mm -hmm.
several of your fellow governors and uh, until recently fellow governors, including Ron DeSantis, including Chris Sununu, including Larry Hogan, uh, have, uh, have said they are in various stages of thinking about running for president. How are you thinking about the Republican presidential field ahead of 2024 right now? Who uh, you know are you excited about? Well, I'm excited to announce my candidacy um, right here, live on your show. I'm going to take those three on, um, and uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I. I want Would you in the a governor. Never. You will never not in run a million for years. Save this clip. Save it, okay. please. Okay. Well, never, you are young. ever, you have ever, ever. Long life yeah, left. Yeah, exactly. I have a long life left. And I would like to keep it that way. <laughs> I, I have a great life ahead of me. Um, someday we'll be done with this. Um, no, I, I'm going to run for governor one more time, and then I'll be done. Uh, so. I believe that governors make the best presidents. I really do. I, I mean that. It, it, it is so different uh, being a governor where you actually have to get stuff done, where you have to work with other people, where you, uh, we, we work together. The NGA is so incredible. I feel so fortunate. Republicans and Democrats, we really do work together. We solve problems together. We learn from each other. We copy each other. We steal each other's ideas. We are the laboratories of democracy. And that's how I'm thinking about it. I don't care which one, but I desperately want a Republican governor to be our next president. President. You have no preference between a uh, President DeSantis or a President Sanu. Uh, just who can win? That's we, that's that's what I care about. So Donald Trump is not an option for you. Uh, I, he he lost a lot, and uh, we lost a lot, and uh, so I would I would love to see. I, I think it's time for some new blood. Um, I'm a little little biased to. People under the age of 80, I think. I, I love I love people over the age of 80. I have two grandmas that are over the age of 90, and they're awesome. Let me be very clear. Neither of them wants to be president, and um, I just I just uh, I think we have so many great options out there that just kind of the retreads. Um, let's let's. Let's try something new. And and by the way, to my friends who are Democrats out there, you should be thinking like I'm thinking. I'm just putting that out there. So uh, we would love nothing more than for you, President Biden to run against us again. So, but let me ask you, because you didn't, were very vocal against Donald Trump in 2016. You ended up supporting him in 2020. So what forced you to shift? Yeah, I, I didn't vote for him in 2020. I thought that you came out and said that I voted you were for him okay in the primary. In the primary, um, yeah, in the, and then and then ended up at the at the at the end. Who I just did you vote for? Do it. Uh, I wrote someone in. Who? My grandma. You did. Yeah. <laughs> Who is over eighty? Pretty great. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> if we're if we're just doing the over eighty thing, then it might as well be one of mine. That's I mean, what I say. Trump so. is only seventy-seven. Yeah. I, but he he would be eighty if he yeah as president if he were elected again. Yeah. Sounds like a like a little bit of hypocrisy if you vote for your grandmother. Sure, but you haven't met my grandmother. <laughs> so, uh, pretty amazing. Oh my gosh, uh, Governor Spencer Cox, Republican of Utah. We are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you to everyone. You can find this program and all of our future programs at WashingtonPostLive.com. And we will see you soon. Stay with. Yes. And I almost forgot, there is a reception. Are there drinks? Is there food? <laughs> no, no coffee, but lots of food. I'm sorry, <laughs> lots of coffee. <laughs> wow, they stingy with the coffee at the Washington no Post, drinks. people. <laughs> no alcohol, lots of coffee, lots of food. So they, they knew a Mormon was in town, and they're like, get rid oh, of the coffee, get rid right. of the alcohol. We're done with it, just get rid of it. So. Yes.
You and Kirsten Cinema, so. <laughs> That's right, yes, so. yes. She was dressed a little better than I am, though. Right, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I, I yeah, Anyway, thank you all so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.